Welcome to the Dream Mason Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Terranova. A dream mason is a person who's brave enough to declare they have a dream and committed enough to do the work to build it. I know we all have a dream mason inside of us, and my dream for this podcast is to support us by giving us a glimpse inside the hearts and minds of leaders, creators, and innovators to help us unleash our inner dream mason. Because your dreams don't build themselves. What's up and welcome back to the Dream Mason podcast. I'm your host, Alex Terranova. I am a Dream Mason, a performance and mindfulness coach. I work with leaders, creators, and innovators, those brave enough to build their dreams. If you're a high performer looking for an edge with a desire to expand your leadership, generate more money, more time, and feel more fulfilled, working with me will support you in making that life a reality. Now, if you haven't already, please support me and this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, Google Play, or YouTube. Follow me, Inspirational Alex, on Instagram, and please share this podcast with a friend. Hey, welcome back to the Dream Mason Podcast. I am your host, Alex Terranova. And today on the Dream Mason Podcast, I have, I want to say a different kind of guest. I have never had a member or a former member of law enforcement on the podcast, but I think what's so cool about the guest today is he went from law enforcement, police officer to entrepreneur. And I think that's pretty inspiring. And I think we're going to get some real, some real insights into what it's like to actually go after what you want and create what you want. Uh, even when you don't necessarily have uh, the background or the training and the get, my guest today is Justin Insulaco. Hey, Justin, how you doing? Hey, Alex, how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm good. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to have you. Thanks for reaching out and uh, actually expressing the desire to be on this podcast and share your story. Absolutely. Yeah, I think what you're doing is awesome. Thanks, man. Uh, I, w- I want to give people a little more information about you. So you were a police officer in, in New York or New Jersey? I was a police officer in New Jersey. Okay. And then basically you created a mobile solution based on a problem that you saw. I love that because it's like, you saw an issue in the business you were in, which happened to be law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And in, instead of just, I want to say what a lot of people do in the world we live in is they complain about it or they don't do anything. Right. You actually took some action and I don't, and the action you took seems like very out of your realm of experience, which is you created mobile software for sure. the federal state and local level law enforcement, um, to help to, you can tell us a little bit more about like what it actually did, but essentially it was to, to fix the problem that you saw. Correct. Yep. And then you went into that business selling this product to different agencies, ultimately because you had this desire to create change and make the system work better and make our society work better. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's 100% accurate. I love that. How did you, before I even, well, here, let me, let me actually give, now you've gone from that to now you're an e-commerce entrepreneur and, yeah. and you have a, you have a nonprofit and you do work in, um, you do work to help, I want to say kids and people that are younger growing up, uh, improve their, what you describe as like soft skills. So in the future, we actually have more people that know about technology, but yet can also work with people versus people that are just technology focused and don't have that human connection or people that are strictly human connection and can't figure out technology. Correct. Yeah. It's kind of uh, we're trying to, you know, kind of bridge the gap between the two of those. 
That's awesome. So how do you, first of all, how did you go, like, how does somebody go from police officer, which I think is just, it couldn't be more opposite. There's nothing entrepreneurial about being a police officer. (laughs) You show up, you kind of follow the routine. It's, you know, surviving is probably a big part of it, but it's, it's dangerous. There's, there's procedures and whatnot. And then entrepreneur is kind of like wild west. Yeah, I agree. I, I think, you know, I think the one good thing is, um, so just to clarify, I, I got hired as a full-time police officer in New Jersey at, at 19 years old. So I was very, very young um, when I got hired. And I think for me, where, when I got in, it was very interesting because, you know, you, you do have about a year, let's say, of pretty intense training. I mean, obviously this is after coming out of the police academy. Once you get to your specific department, you go through about a year of riding along with somebody else and they, you know, they take you through policy and procedure and how to handle particular calls for service. But after that, I mean, you're on your own. And in the department I worked for, we were in one man cars. So you would go out on a call and it would primarily be up to you to, to figure out what was happening and, and come up with a solution and handle the call for service. I think that's where some of it became, I mean, for me in my journey now is, you know, very early on in my life, making decisions that, you know, ultimately sometimes could affect somebody's life, you know, made me uh, ready to make decisions on a very quick basis. So I think that part of it helped my entrepreneurial journey, uh, you know, being very early on having to make those types of decisions. But what ended up happening was, is, you know, at 19 years old, I was very tech savvy compared to most of the people in my agency. And I noticed that, you know, we were still using binders of paper to, to look for policy and procedure, right? So you would be in the police car and you would go to a call for service and you would have to figure out exactly how to handle it. But in order to do that, you'd have to go through like a 400 page, you know, um, journal of different policies and procedures. I thought this was ridiculous. Why couldn't I have access to this stuff on my phone? So essentially what we first created was just digitizing those policies and procedures so police officers could search them by keyword and find them on their mobile device. So whether that be a laptop in the car or on your phone, which you always had on you anyway, you'd be able to access this information. So it was really started around policies and procedures. And then we expanded on it and we made it interoperable. So a lot of times police agencies work together. So you might work with a neighboring jurisdiction on something and you don't know what their policy and procedure is for handling it. And that would happen quite often. So what, would, so what we created was the ability to immediately share documents with other police agencies when you were working on something together. So if there was like a robbery or a major incident at, at a mall or a school, everybody that was responding, no matter what agency they were coming from, they would all have access to the same information, the same response plans, the same maps, the same policies and procedures. Um, So that's kind of the crux of what we created for the law enforcement market. And we didn't realize in the beginning, like, you know, how awesome it really was. I mean, I knew that it was a problem that we had in my agency, but, you know, I didn't think that it was an, it was a problem that a lot of agencies had. And, um, you know, we actually ended up um, having the software deployed at the RNC and the DNC and the presidential inauguration. And we worked with a lot of federal agencies on it. So it was actually a really, really cool experience. And it obviously was the start of, you know, my entrepreneurial journey. That's pretty awesome. And I think the funny thing is over here, I'm listening and I'm going, well, this makes perfect sense. Why would everybody not want this? Right. But I think that, that's the cool thing about your, that's one of the cool things about this story and your journey is, it's a kind of a simple, you didn't, you didn't create something that was like how to get us to the moon. Right. It's not yeah. like Astro. You actually saw a problem 
created a very simple solution. Now the, the, the technical aspects of it in the programming are not as simple, but the actual like fundamental, Hey, this would make this work better. was pretty simple. And then you told me before that like the roadblocks to actually getting a simple change to actually make things work better, how difficult that was. What was that part of the journey like? Yeah, that was really difficult. So, so, I mean, it's really twofold. I mean, the first part is that you have these technology companies that are out there. Most of them started by creating like compliance software for banks or hospitals or other, you know, kind of large private industry. And they transition into the law enforcement market because their software is relatively similar, but they're so heavy and convoluted that uh, it's very difficult to kind of implement into an actual day by day, you know, police infrastructure. So, you know, you need something quick and light in law enforcement because you're making a lot of decisions and you're handling a lot of calls for service. But a lot of these technologies were super heavy. And so what happened was when we would go with this light client, basically mobile application and, you know, and also, you know, mobile software, the police departments would be like, oh, it's this easy. And it's not that complicated. So we got a lot of that. We got a lot of, we got, we turned a lot of heads that way too. A lot of people said no to us in the beginning because it wasn't complicated enough, which I thought was, you know, like such a disservice to the law enforcement community because they were so used to having these super heavy convoluted systems that, that something that was light, you know, and the whole world was moving to light client services and they, they were so confused by the ease of it that they, they thought it was cheap essentially. Um, and then besides that, I mean, getting meetings with police chiefs, you would think would be relatively easy, but it's very, very difficult. And then after you would get the approval from a police chief, even if they were like, oh, we love this, we need this at our agency, the, the buying process in a government entity is, is, is ridiculous. Uh, it's so bureaucratic and so much red tape to actually get the service and product paid for. I mean, the life cycle of, you know, of your sales cycle in, in the government sector is, I mean, minimal six months, um, in most cases, a year to two years before you actually see some type of revenue from, you know, basically the services you provide to some type of government entity. It's, it's such a nightmare. Um, and once I started to see that, I said, okay, well, you know, maybe we have to get outside of this whole arena to really kind of make the change that we're really looking to make here. Cause it, 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 it I mean, it was super, super, um, twisted in order to get these agencies to buy anything. Well, what's really cool about this piece is that it's just like any entrepreneur, you know, it's different because you're dealing with the government and you're going back into the field that you were in. But I I bet if we brought any entrepreneur and you know, from your new businesses, there's the, the challenges, the ebbs and flows and no one who ventures into being an entrepreneur is like, Oh, this was easy. I just made all this money and I I didn't have any struggles or challenges. It's not a thing. Um, what have you learned about being an entrepreneur, not in the details of like the police piece, but what did you learn about the challenge from going from like, I want to say a, a traditional job right. to actually being someone who actually has to create all of it and is responsible for all of it. Like there's no one, you know, you don't have a boss, right? You don't have right. someone who can be like, Oh, it's their fault. It's all on you as an entrepreneur. Yeah. Well, I'll say this. I mean, you know, I don't know whether, People will people listening will say, you know, I took an easier way or a harder way. But you know, for 
for me, you know, having a, a, a great salary and then also running this business in the fir- in the early years on its on, you know, basically, you know, um, on my days off, essentially, uh, you know, so part time entrepreneur, essentially, in the beginning. I think what was what was interesting for me was I knew how hard it was going to be when I left because I understood how long the life cycle of my sales cycle was. So I, I knew how difficult it was going to be. And I left anyway, thinking that if I was able to focus more time on this, that I would that I would, you know, have a better chance of, you know, making contact with the right people and, you know, and, and being able to drive this thing fully forward. So I think, you know, what I learned was uh, getting out, you know, getting out once I left and I didn't have that structure anymore. For me, it was, you know, obviously at that point, then you have to be a self-starter and a self-motivator. And, and I think that, you know, some of the things, some of the traditions that I learned in law enforcement were good, but I think for me, it was just about, you know, getting up and knowing that it was about, it was about little steps. I think a lot of people are always shooting for the home runs or, or, or trying to, you know, they're trying to get meetings with Google and Facebook and, and, you know, these, these big conglomerates that will, you know, kind of drive their business forward for them slightly. For me, it was about short little wins. You know, it was about maybe instead of, instead of getting, you know, turned down by the police chief secretary, you know, getting the police chief's voicemail and figuring out new ways to, to, you know, to meet law enforcement, uh, you know, executives, um, you know, going to different conferences, learning, you know, every day I would just get up and try to make little tiny wins. I think for me, that was what has been effective is not, not focusing on, not focusing on the sale per se, but focusing on all the little things I can do on a daily and hourly basis that will get me to those sales, I think has been one of the driving forces behind what I do as an entrepreneur. I love that. I love the baby steps versus the home runs, like actually like just get hitting singles, right? consistently putting people on base and then yeah. getting them all the way around versus, Hey, everybody needs to go up there and go for the, the you know, swing for the fences. I also hear in what you're saying this, you had this ability to not stop because you didn't necessarily hit the home run every time. And, and probably a lot of times you didn't even get, you know, the single or the baby step, Right. but you had this consistency to keep going. I think what stops so many people entrepreneur or otherwise doesn't matter what your goals are is we get stopped by such like little trivial circumstances. And some of us has huge circumstances, but it doesn't matter. We still ultimately get stopped and don't continue to put one foot in front of the other, which is really what I hear that had you be successful is every day you put one foot in front of the other, no matter what. Right. I mean, it's, it's persistence, right? I mean, you know, I, I think if you actually take a look at some of the, like the most successful entrepreneurs and however you want to, however you want to, you know, uh, use that metric. But I think that I would say that at least 95% of them have been really successful through persistence. And I think that that's really the, like, that's really the key, I think, to entrepreneurship is the persistence of it. I mean, just being able to, even if you had a really shitty day the day before and, and nothing's really going your way and you're super in debt and, you know, there's, you're not, you're not really making sales is being able to get up and take, like you say, put one foot in front of the other, take small baby steps and, and just keep walking that line on a daily basis, I think is what, eventually leads to success. And maybe you do fail on your first endeavor or your 10th endeavor, or maybe you fail on your 20th. But I think that if you, if you really get up every day and put one foot in front of the other, just like you said, I think that's when, you know, ultimately there's, there's success in your future. Um, especially as, you know, as an entrepreneur, I mean, cause you, you, you have the ability to create your own success, I think, which is what's so different about any other, um, you know, limiting type traditional job. Well, can we talk about failure for a second? I'm sure. curious what 
because we all view failure differently. You know, I, I know that I find in my practice, a lot of my clients are afraid to fail. They view failure in, in this way that is, is very scary, is ending, is, is there's, there's huge judgments about who they would be if they fail or, or these fears about what it would mean if they fail. And I'm a believer that there's actually no such thing as failure. You right. only fail if you, if you quit. Right. If you don't quit, failure is just lessons over and over again. Yeah, it stings sometimes. But as long as you get back up off that bike, when the bike falls over and you get back on it, you'll learn how to ride it. What have you, what, what's been the thing that's helped you continue to get, like that had you get back up when you have failed, when you have got knocked off? What was the thing that kept you going forward? And what would be the lesson for other people that they could take away from that, from what you've learned? Yeah. I mean, for me, I mean, I know I, I would say that it's, it's just this drive to actually create change. I mean, I'm not driven by, you know, I, I think, I think where, where people start to, and, and we can call it whatever you want. I, I, I agree with you, but I, I call it failure only because it doesn't, neg- it doesn't have a negative impact on my psyche when I say failure. And I know that I have failed to certain things before, but I've learned and I've kept, I've kept going. So ultimately you know, I, I didn't ultimately fail. I, I'm continuing to go. I think, I think what happens is if you're driven by the money and you're driven by some of the, some of the things that I think um, a lot of entrepreneurs who, who don't make it, that's they're driven by the wrong things. And for me, I've been driven by the ability or, or the, the, the want and desire to create change. Um, whether that's small or, or big, it's the ability to create change that I have as an entrepreneur that I didn't have in a traditional type job. That's what keeps me going every day. So whether somebody closes the door on my face, whether I, I just go belly up and we lose, we lose all the money we've put into this, whatever happens, um, for me, it was knowing that, um, you know, I, I, I instilled some type of change in an industry that, that needed it. Um, and I, I made it better for the consumer. I made it better for the, the, the people involved through the supply chain, you know, whatever it may be that I've created some type of change. And for me, that's what drives me every day. That's what, that's what keeps me getting up and, and, and making the phone calls and taking the meetings and, and taking the baby steps forward is, is this desire to create a positive change. So you're really clear on your why you're like, what for you have, you're very connected to that thing. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. For me, everything else falls into place. I mean, if, if you're creating change and you're creating disruption you know, in a positive light, then, you know, the money comes later, you know, the money comes where there is change. I mean, if, if you're making strides in an industry, you know, you're bound to be rewarded for it. And, and that's kind of my philosophy. So what's, what does stop you? Like, what are the things that get in your way that shut you down that have you kind of question yourself or your path? And then after you, I kind of share those with us. I'm curious, like how you continue to overcome them. Yeah, I think for me, um, you know, sometimes, sometimes I think that, you know, I don't have, um, I, I don't have some of the right tools. Maybe sometimes I think that I don't have a hard skill. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a technologist. I'm not, um, you know, I'm not great at Excel or PowerPoint or any of the things that, you know, I, I have a, I have a basic understanding of everything and, and I'm not, I'm not somebody that has a tremendous amount of, of, like I said, of, of real, you know, um, measurable skill in terms of, you know, what you would need to, in order to create a product or, you know, create some type of, you know, consumer changing environment. But so, so sometimes I think that maybe those things are limiting. Uh, and then sometimes like, especially when we started to raise money, I thought, okay, well, if I would have put more time into school as, as a kid and I could have gotten to a better college, 
it wouldn't have been about the education, but I would have made these tremendous connections. I saw my, my fellow entrepreneurs, friends that I've made over the years that have, you know, degrees from Princeton or degrees from Harvard that, that raising money is so easy for them. Right. And it's an essential part of entrepreneurship and a lot of, you know, consumer-based businesses or really any entrepreneurship raising money is such a, a crucial part. And I've watched them raise money so easily because of, you know, they can go to alumni and they don't have the same doors closed on them as I have. So some of those things have been, um, you know, they've been frustrating over the years. Uh, so those are some of the things that I definitely have struggled with for sure. Well, you didn't, what, I, what I'm getting to is you didn't use them as an excuse, right? So oh, somebody, no. I love that you just framed it how you did, because I don't care who you are. We all have different levels of access or opportunity or, you know, the families we were born into, the societies that, you know, the, whether it be economic or, or ethnic or cultural, we're all impacted by these things in all these different ways. And we all have somewhere where we're like, man, I wish I had that thing that that other person had. Right, of course. Difference, it sounds like, between you and someone else that maybe isn't succeeding or is stuck is that you didn't actually let that thing stop you. So no. when you noticed your limiting beliefs, like I heard, hey, like maybe I'm not either smart enough or educated enough or don't have the technical skill, like I should, I should know more about this or I don't have enough money, you didn't let that stop you. No, not at all. I, I think, you know, I think that it actually empowered me. Um, and, and, and maybe that, you know, that's obviously something that's instilled in me, you know, in, you know, in my inside. And it also is driven by the fact that I know that I can create the same change that they can create and they might have the power and the money or have access or, or they know how to develop something on their own, but I, nobody could take my drive from me. That's the one thing that I had that I was given, um, and that I've, that I've worked at. So for me, I, it, it actually empowered me to say, okay, well, if they have those things going for them, I'm going to, I'm going to make this even better. And I don't have those things going for me. So it made me work that much harder. And like I said, for me, um, it's, it, I also didn't let it cloud my judgment though. I also didn't let it, I also wasn't going after the money every single day or going after, like I said, you know, trying to hit the home run. I just got up and do it and did what I can do on a daily basis to, to keep taking the steps forward to, to grow my brand and to grow, you know, to grow my business. And, you know, for me, it's, it's had tremendous outcome and success. Do you think people can create drive if they don't have it? Like you, you describe it as you have this natural kind of hunger, um, but everybody doesn't. And I, I'm a believer that people could generate anything. Sure. Right? You, yeah. you can generate anything from inside of you if you're committed to, to doing it and then practicing it. How, right. do, how do you think people could generate drive or that hunger if they don't have it? Well, I mean, I think the first part is, I mean, you have to find what drives you, right? I mean, for me, it's creating change. I think that's the problem, right? I think that, I think, I mean, you're, you're definitely um, more inclined with this than I am, but, but I think that people that don't know what drives them is really the issue. So I think a lot of people get involved in entrepreneurship because they want to be able to travel the world and, and work from their computer and work from a yacht in the Bahamas and all these things that are the, the grandiose ideas of entrepreneurship that are driven into our brains by guys like Gary Vee and all these other guys that, that talk about all the things that, that they have now, now that they've already been successful. And I think the problem is that those aren't the things that, that internally your body, that your, your mind and, and your body really want to drive after. For me, I wouldn't do it. I, I couldn't get the same motivation I get out of wanting to create change that I get out of that. I would, that I would be able to get out of money. If I was just doing this for money, I wouldn't have the same drive. It's just the way that I am. Cause it doesn't, that 
you know, at the end of the day, for me, money doesn't mean everything. To some people, maybe that is the drive, but to other people, it might be to, you know, to help uh, build a business that, that can employ all women or build a business that can employ, you know, all of one, you know, minority or whatever, it, whatever that is, whatever the reasoning is behind you that wants you, that you, that you want to drive after and, and do good for, I think that's what you have to find first. You have to check yourself internally and figure it out what it is that you're really passionate about. Otherwise, you'll never be able to create that drive. I don't think, at least. Yeah, no, that's great. It's a great take on it. And what I really get from you is it's about authenticity in the sense of you really had to know who you are and what's important to you. And then you got to choose to empower your what for or your why. And I think the thing that people don't always remember, which you said it, is every day then you had to get up and rechoose it. You know, whether whether it's health or a commitment to marriage. I think we forget, like we make these commitments and then every day when we wake up in the morning, it's like we start with a blank slate. We actually have to re-choose what we're up to because if we don't re-choose it, it's not going to happen. Right. I totally agree with you. Yeah. I mean, everything's work, right? I mean, look at, look at anything that you do for a long period of time. It all becomes work. You know, you have to commit yourself to it. And like you say, yeah, you have to get up every morning and, and recommit yourself and, and find if it's something that you're still passionate about and something that is, you're still willing to drive for because it sucks. It's not easy. It's sometimes it's the absolute worst. Some days, you know, there, I have terrible days still, and, and you know, and we're doing well and I have terrible days still where I'm like, what am I doing? And I should just go back and work, you know, work at, you know, some, 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 you know, typical, you know, some job that is, you know, provides security and is easy. But, you know, those days are days that I haven't really done, you know, inventory on myself and, and really have, you know, been authentic internally and, and realized that, you know, that's not, I wouldn't be happy there. I'm only happy when I have the ability to drive forward, you know? Yeah. And what I get from that is happiness is something that you generate also. You know, everybody, I think everybody wants to be happy. I think that's pretty like universal. Um, And most people, it seems like, because I don't know if you're right about this, but it seems like most people, we think happiness is external. Well, when I get that job or when I get that partner or when I make that much money, then I'll feel the way that I want to feel. And what I'm getting from you is like, you actually generate the happiness based on the things you're doing and who you're being like, it's an internal thing that then spreads externally. Right. Yeah. I mean, I told, I, I think I, I try to do that in everything that we do. I try to do that with the, the, the employees that work for us. I try to do that with, with my business partners. I try to do that with partners that we take on. I try to only work with people that, that um, align with that, at least that align with my happiness because Otherwise, you know, if you, if you, if you can't be happy in doing this and every day you wake up, you got to deal with somebody you don't want to deal with and all these things that, that come with, I mean, and listen, sometimes you got to suck it up and deal with certain people depending on, you know, what kind of value they bring to your business. Right. So I can't, I can't distance myself from that too, too much, but for the most part, you can find somebody very similar to the person that you don't want to deal with that you do want to deal with. And they also provide the same value to your business. And you know, that, that will just generate, you know, a tremendous amount of happiness for yourself. And it also is, I think it also matters how you let it imprint on your brain, right? It also matters how you, I think, I think the brain is a very powerful thing and, and, and you, how you receive that information, how you take in the external information, um, you know, you could, your brain could twist it and, and make it a happy experience. You know, that's the one thing that I say that I, I think I do a very good job at is even the worst news that we could possibly get, you know, I take it and, and I really evaluate it and realize that, 
even though I got a no, or even though I got a, we're not interested, or even though we lost a sale or whatever it might be, that all that stuff is, is, is actually happy to me. It, it's, it's good news because we've now figured out, we got one more reason why we got a no. We got one more reason why we didn't make the sale. And now the next day, we could use those things that we learned to make the sale and, and to, to get the no from a yes. Yeah, you choose the, you, you don't get to choose what happens, but you're right. really empowering the, how you're going to respond to what happens. Right. Just, that's awesome. What's, what's next for you? Like, what are the big goals and the big dreams moving forward? <clears throat> oh, so for us, I mean, for me, I think it's, it's really to uh, continue to grow our brand. So yeah, as you mentioned, you know, right now we're working on a e-commerce company called legendary. Um, and it was a very difficult industry to break into even from the onset, there was a bunch of barriers. So basically it's a, it's a, it's a diamond platform that, um, flips the whole diamond industry on its head and allows for uh, site holders, which are, you know, the, the number one person to get the diamond outside of the mind, they bid against each other for my consumer's business. Right. And then obviously, you know, we set the stones and it's basically an an engagement and wedding band platform. Um, But one of the things that is the big goal for us is we're actually in conversations with uh, the country of Botswana right now which is a country in Southern Africa. And they, they mine probably around 60% of, you know, the diamonds that come out of Africa. And right now, one of the companies that they work with primarily is the beers, but they're, they're in, in talks with renegotiating. See, the issue there is that what's happening is they're mining the diamonds in, in Botswana. And then the beers is taking those diamonds and moving them to India or other places around the world where those diamonds are being cut and polished. So, the problem is, is that that limits the the economy in Botswana. Now, they have a very good social welfare program because they, the country is very wealthy from the amount of diamonds that they mine there. But the problem is everybody's out of work and you have a lot of talented cutters and polishers that are right there in in the country, but the, the jobs aren't going to them. They're being pulled from outside of the country. The, the diamonds are being pulled from the country and put in other places around the world, which obviously creates jobs in other places, but what about the people that are actually there mining the stones, the people that are right there at that early spot of the supply chain? So what we've been doing with the country is working on building supply chain structure there in the country that would put people of Botswana to work cutting and polishing and and letting them make their own entrepreneurial ecosystem right there in the country. Um, And then then actually having them sell the stones to our consumers through the platform. So, so you, you kind of cut out, you kind of cut out the middleman. You like empower the, or the creator in a way. Right. So we definitely cut out the middleman and a lot of them, because what people don't understand, I think, is that when you buy a diamond in New York or Chicago, or uh, forget about it, if you buy it from K or one of the large jewel, uh, retailers, but if you buy it from New York, a lot of times those diamonds have went through like four five, even six hands sometimes. So what we're doing is we're cutting out all of those every and every time it passes through a hand, what do you think happens? Somebody's taking a piece of the action. Somebody's somebody's increasing the somebody's increasing the margins that they're making. So mm-hmm. what we do is we cut out all those middlemen and we get, you know, we go right from site holder, which is the basically the first stop after the mine to the consumer. But what we're working on in Botswana is is basically allowing them to build an infrastructure there in the country that would essentially make them a site holder. So what we would be doing is going right from the mine to the consumer, um, which I think is you know such an integral part of creating change because it changes the way the industry works and it puts 
the people in that country back to work rather than just living off social welfare. It seems like the companies, the big companies, you know, I don't, I don't know a lot about diamonds, but the big diamond companies would not be happy that somebody like you is creating something like this. Well, I mean, I think, I think, I mean, actually, so, so interestingly enough, we were able to uh, bring in um, some, some high profile executives from the diamond industry to come onto our board. And I, I think um, it's not really necessarily that the big companies are okay because they'll have the opportunity to win our consumer's business because we're, we're a reverse auction, right? So essentially they could win our consumer's business and, and it's not them per se, but it's, it's the, it's the middlemen who don't like us. It's the, the diamond dealers and, and some of the, you know, the, the low level retailers, they're the ones that are unhappy about this because, you know, they're the ones that really, when, when you talk about collusion in the diamond industry, right? If you talk to any one of your friends that got engaged, you know, they're going to say, well, when I went to the store, I didn't realize, you know, I didn't know if I was getting, if I was getting swindled or, you know, it's, it's such a, a creepy experience to buy a diamond. So what we're trying to do is to avoid that. And in order to avoid that, we have to cut out a lot of those guys. And I think, and uh, those are the ones that are unhappy about us, not so much the big companies because they'll still have the opportunity to win. Um, but it's where the collusion happens, which is with the mid-level wholesalers and, and retailers. So I want to, I'm curious about like some social stuff because now we're talking about like, you know, in diamonds, there's a lot of, you know, I want to say, um, like inhumane or, um, or, you know, things that I like, like lack of equality, lack of treatment of people. And you came from, you also came from the police department and especially here in America, right? We have this massive issue right now with police and communities. Right. And it's, it affects both sides, right? Because the intention of police is to actually help us. Correct. The police weren't designed to be against us. They were designed to help us and support us and actually, you know, essentially just uphold the laws that we've all decided we wanted. And then, um, and then there's also, you know, and there's, there's times where, and we're human, right? We all make mistakes on both sides, whether they're criminals or the police. But I think that it's cool that you, you've been in two industries now, that in a way have a lot of high profile, um, a lot of high profile issues <laughs> yeah, and, break, sure. and breakdowns. If, if I don't know how to say it any cleaner, cause I really don't want to put blame on either side. Cause, cause all sides of all the issues, it's, it's not one side that everything is, there's things that can be cleaned up, improved on every side of every issue. Um, what do you see as like, you know, as somebody who really wants to create change, what do you see as the thing that's actually going to improve our world in these industries? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, the, a, big, it's the, a big question. I know I threw a lot at you. Yeah. The, the one, I mean, the one in regards to police and community, I mean, we could probably spend, you know, a whole week series on it. I mean, it's, it's a very complicated <laughs> issue. Um, but I, I would say that, you know, we've gotten too far away um, in the police world of, you know, police and community interactions. And I think that, you know, I, I mean, I do, I, I will say from my own experience and from what I've seen since it, it obviously is both sides, right? It's both sides of the coin that, that need to, you know, to, to dress up their side a little bit. And, and I think then come to some type of mutual agreement, but it's difficult. It's difficult now because it's, 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 it's cold. It's, it's, it's a tough environment now because there has been, you know, I, I think the media plays a big part in that story too, because, you know, you see a lot of the negative interactions between police and the community, but they don't do 
anything about highlighting the positive interactions between the police and the community, which I think is a disservice to the problem in and of itself. But the negativity is what sells ratings. It's what sells commercials. It's what you know, buys viewers. So I think that that system in and of itself is tough. But um, you know, because you really, ultimately, if you look at the amount of interactions that happen on a daily basis, 95% of them are all positive. But but you do have, you know, you have bad eggs in, in every, in, in every uh, job. And I think, you know, you do have things that happen that shouldn't have happened and, but they did. And it's, and what's happening is that because of the, you know, the, the, the portrayal by the media, it's, it's, it's becoming a firestorm of every, you know, everybody thinking now that there's this epidemic amongst police officers for, you know, wanting to hurt people, which I, you know, I definitely don't believe to be the truth. It was never my intention and I, nobody that I worked with, but there is bad people in that job. So I think, I think that it's a matter of really, you know, police departments doing uh, a stronger job of, of being authentic with the community and spending, you know, spending a lot of quality time. And I know a lot of agencies are doing a really good job of this now, but I think you're going to see, it's going to take many, many, many years to really kind of come back to some, um, some type of, you know, uh, understanding between the police and the community. And I think that the media's role in this is, is so important. And, um, you know, I, I would, I, if anybody from the media I, I listens to this, I would, I would implore them to, you know, really do a good job of as much as they highlight the negative, which people have the right to know, they should be highlighting the positive, which I think, you know, could alter the way that the story's told. Um, what's, what's interesting. Lo- I love that you, you just touched on both sides. Thanks for like kind of hitting all the little points. And I, and I think that even there's even more power. I think that we lose, as the consumer, it's actually us that has the power. Right. Um, I always have this conversation with my mom. My mom is a big like political news watcher. <laughs> and, um, she hates, she, she, she watches it. Right. And she, so she obviously doesn't hate it, but she talks often about how she hates that. Like, it's always the same conversation pretty much right now. It's all Trump, right? That's all right, that's on the news, yep. uh, any cable news really. And I always joke with her. I'm like, well, mom, it's on because you watch it. And I don't mean you because she's not the only one, right? They're not playing for her. Right. Everyone that tunes in every single day feeds the ratings. If people actually wanted change, they could just turn off the TV. Right. If nobody watched CNN or nobody watched Fox News, Fox News or CNN would both have to go, wait, we need to put something on people would want to watch. Yeah, I agree. People could actually determine, hey, we want positivity on the news or we want a balance. Can we get 50% of good stories, 50% of bad and some, some mixture? And actually, it could be designed by the viewers if we wanted to change. And I think that's actually the story, right? Same thing with Diamonds. If we care about the quality of, you haven't even touched on this yet, but if we care about the quality of our Diamonds, how the people are treated, we can actually choose where we get them from. And no, you know, you know a lot, again, a lot more about this than I do. But as a consumer, we have a lot more power than we think we do, especially in groups. For sure. For sure. I, I mean, I totally agree with you. You're 100% right. You're 100% right. It's just so hard to get everybody on the same page for that. But you're, you're totally <laughs> sure. right. Yeah. Well, there's your, there's your next, uh, there's your next yeah, venture. Type of media um, strategy, yeah. So I think with the diamond side, is, which is very interesting, is that there's also a, a, a tremendous false narrative in the diamond space because people think it's De Beers and Al Rosa, the large diamond companies, that are the ones that cause this inhumane treatment, but they're not. Where you see this inhumane treatment happening is in what they call artisanal mines, which are like smaller mines in, in, in different countries that are run independently by uh, either, a, either a private business or 
uh, or the country itself. And, and where these inhumane actions are happening is from their own government, is from their own people. You know, what you see in Zimbabwe is the Zimbabwe army and military slaughtering their own to take the diamonds. Now, that's wrong. Right. And you shouldn't they, they shouldn't have the ability to, to sell those diamonds to any open market because they, they, they I mean, they achieve them by, by genocide and, and theft. So but, but what I think the narrative is people believe it's De Beers and these large companies that are doing this and it's not them. Now, are they negligent in probably in some form or fashion ended up end up buying some of these diamonds from these from these people who slaughter people? Yeah. I mean, they are there is. um there is instances of negligence on their side, but it's not them that's creating the inhumane treatment. And, and it was a very interesting conversation. And again, I won't touch too much on is th- this is how, this is why I feel that people have the wrong narrative about man-made diamonds. And, you know, right now, I don't know if you watch, but man-made diamonds are hot right now, you know, with the, the, these diamonds that are created in the lab. And yes, from chemistry composition standpoint, they are literally um, exactly the same as real diamonds. But my issue with it is that people are buying them because they believe them to be more ethical. But I think that that's a bullshit cop-out, to be honest with you, because I think what's actually going to happen over time is they're going to be, they're going to be even more unethical. First of all, you don't have a diamond that was created over, over time, which I think is so valuable when you talk about an engagement ring is that what I think is so wonderful about diamonds is that you have this, this basically this piece of coal that was forged under pressure and created this beautiful diamond that represents your love for, for another person. Right. I mean, that's basically what it's come to mean. And to use that in a man-made setting to me, I mean, it doesn't have the same value in my, in my mind. It is the same chemical composition, but it doesn't have the same value. And then to use the ethical part of this story as a reason to buy man-made, I don't, I don't buy it because over time, you're actually going to, you're going to destroy these countries where their only source of income is from these diamonds. And when the armies and the governments and, and the people at the, at the top don't have the diamonds to kind of, you know, put money in their pockets. What do you think they're going to do to the people when they can't afford to take care of them anymore? I mean, what do you think is going to happen to these countries? You're going to destroy these countries. So in my, in my opinion, and we're actually working on something right now, Alex, to try to get the right story out. In my opinion, buying man-made diamonds is actually more unethical than, than buying uh, a real diamond. I appreciate you. I mean, I've never heard a, you know, I don't, I, I don't even know enough to engage. In right, the of course. Yeah, I know. Um, um, but I, and I'm sure there's, there's, you know, somebody listening does and has an opinion. Um, but I appreciate you, you sharing, you know, what I, what I like about you that you shared with me since we've started talking is you're authentic. You're actually willing to share your opinion. And I think one of, look, we live in a world that we should all be entitled to share our opinion. So I don't, I can't speak to right or wrong or good right. or bad, but I, I do appreciate you pointing to all the different sides and actually looking at like, Hey, what I kind of hear is like, Hey, nobody's perfect. And the idea is like, how can we do our best to actually make sure we treat other people well and actually make people to have everyone being taken care of on all sides. And I think if actually as human beings, I was just talking to somebody about this the other day and I was sharing with somebody, Hey, like they were asking me for advice. And I said, well, how would you want somebody to do it to you? And they told me exactly how they'd want it to go. And I went, well, it seems like that's how you'd handle it. Because if we all only did that, right? Like if we only just treated people like we wanted to be treated, I think the world would be a lot, a lot better of a place. I agree. I agree. I mean, 
I think people, people have this inability. I, I, I think some of our detriment is people have this inability to see both sides of the story and they're unwilling to try to, you know, people aren't, people don't like, that's why. And again, to tie in real quick, this is why we started this nonprofit is because I think that, you know, besides authenticity, I think empathy is such a big part of being an entrepreneur, right? Is being able to see the pain points and being able to, to, to basically mirror somebody and see the pain points they have, because that's how you sell something to somebody is if you take care of one of their pain points um, or, you know, or one of their desires. But I think being able to be empathetic and being able to understand the other side of the coin, I think is so important because otherwise, you know, you're just, you have your own viewpoint and, you know, you're unwilling to really, to really change anything that, that kind of limits you from moving forward because, you know, maybe your, maybe your product isn't good enough or maybe your product doesn't really take care of the pain points you believe it to take care of. But if you're unwilling or you don't have the empathy to see it from your consumer's perspective, your product's never going to get better and you're not going to sell that product and your business is going to fail. And I think that that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why I think empathy is so important as well. It's such a great point. And I hear in that, like, um, I don't know why this, when you were talking, it made me think of feedback as an entrepreneur. Feedback is huge. Anyone in any business feedback is huge. And it's in some of us, I know I do have so much trouble taking feedback. Like I want to be able to take it. I want to be able to hear it, but you know, my ego sometimes can get in the way. And I think what you're speaking with from empathy, we can have empathy for other people. We can have empathy for ourselves. And if we can do that, then feedback, whether we're giving it or getting it, can actually land and then it can be used to move things forward versus holding us back or causing like a fight or something that gets in our way. I agree. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's a very difficult thing to do at first. I mean, that's definitely a skill that you have to practice at is, is taking feedback. It, it is tough for everybody. I mean, you're an entrepreneur for the most part because you, know, you want to get out there and take the bull by the horns and, and be a self-starter and a self-motivator and, you're passionate and you put, you know, you believe or you have put a lot of, of, of yourself into your product and into your design and into your PowerPoint, and your presentation. And to get feedback that's something other than great is tough to swallow at first. But I think, you know, over time, it, it really is what makes you better. The people that have gotten that feedback, the people that have having, the people that have had more conversations, have had more presentations that have went badly, those people are way better presenters because they've already learned all the things that, that, their viewer or their consumer doesn't want to see or hear about. They, they learn the, the very specifics of, of what's going to make their business successful. And if they're able to do that and, and harness it and turn it into, you know, to, to profit producing, uh, you know, interest, I think that's what really what makes, you know, your business powerful. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm thinking about the whole, like, taking feedback isn't easy. Hearing feedback, you know, isn't giving it isn't always easy. And it's all part of that. What makes a diamond, you know, is pressure. Right. And it's, I've talked about this on the podcast before. um, And I know I've talked about this on social media, but we all have a relationship to pressure. Not we, we shouldn't say we all, many of us have a relationship to pressure. That's very negative bias. Pressure is bad. We don't want pressure. It's uncomfortable. We want to avoid it. And almost everything that's great that's created in life was created out of some sort of pressure or need and pressure only helps us expand and grow. Correct. Um, but I think that ties into, you can be more with pressure when you've learned how to be more empathetic. Cause I don't think you can be empathetic to others if you actually can't have empathy 
or sympathy for yourself. Like, I think it all starts with us and then it can expand outwards. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what, I mean, that's what they always say, you know, they, you know, I think that, it, and that works with anything. I mean, you can't be, if you're not, if you're not taking care of yourself or you're not, you don't understand yourself or you, you haven't really done an internal inventory list on yourself. I mean, you can't, you can't operate a good business. You can't have good business partnerships. You, I mean, you, you're not even a good party to be in a relationship until you know you take care of your own house first. I mean, I totally agree with that in every aspect of life, not just entrepreneurship. Is there anything else that you're just like, man, there's, there's anything else that you just feel like you really need to share for, you know, for like budding entrepreneurs that you just think is a great lesson that, that you wish you had known? Yeah, for me, I, I think when I first started, because I knew nothing, I read a lot of books. I listened to a lot of podcasts, a lot of Gary, you know, a lot of, a lot of the, the people that have, that have, you know, displayed success in, in social media and such. And, and, and I tried to, I thought there was this, I thought there was this recipe. I thought there was this foolproof recipe that if you follow this, that you're going to get to success. And I think that the one thing I want to say is that it, it sucks. Every day sucks. It, it, even, even after you've made it a quote unquote, and you've, you've, you know, hit some of the goals that you want to hit, it still continues to suck because you're, you're not like everybody else. You don't, you don't have a, you know, a steady job to go to, you, you know, your, your paycheck is, is being guaranteed by yourself and nothing in within that is guaranteed because you have to make sales or you have to get contracts or whatever your business requires. You know, you have to do that on a daily basis and it's tough. You know, it's, it's tough sometimes to wake up and be a self-starter, but I think that, you know, if you, if you're able to open up your mind and not be limited by what you believe or what other people tell you is this, foolproof way of doing it. If you're able to just look at your problem, the one problem you have for that day and take the baby steps towards fixing it. Um, I think that's really the key to being a successful entrepreneur and and no matter what industry you want to be in, I'm at a point in my life now, Alex, where, and and, in my entrepreneurial journey, where I feel like I could either continue down this path of, 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 you know, of changing the way that diamonds are purchased and the way that the supply chain works in the diamond field, or, I can go up on a chain of Arby's. I feel like with the things that I have learned and my persistence <laughs> and the thing that the things that I want to do, they're, they're, they're reciprocal to any industry because once you have that drive and you know, what drives you and you have the internal, the internal knowledge of yourself, then I think that you can really do anything. I think that's the most critical part is, is stop watching what everybody else is doing and focus on yourself. I love that. Thanks for that. That was great. That was a great, really great answer. Um, I have some rapid fires for you and some were created based on what you just said, but, um, one, I want to take you, I'm curious. I want to go back to when you were a police officer. Okay. What was, the, what was the scariest moment? What was like the scariest moment for you when you worked that job? Honestly, uh, choking baby. Um, you know, we had a lot, you know, a lot of, a lot of things that put yourself in danger, but, but at the end of the day, you don't really think about those things anymore. I, I don't, at least for me, it was being handed a baby that was choking and realizing that if, if I didn't know what I was doing or I couldn't figure it out, that there was a chance that this baby might die. And for me, that was probably the scariest thing that I had to deal with. Oh man. Wow. Um, what was the best lesson you learned as a police officer? Uh, empathy. I think being able to, you know, whether you had to arrest somebody, whether somebody had just passed away and, and you had to, you know, help them plan, you know, getting a funeral company there to, to, to take care of, to take it, take their loved one, uh, no matter what it was that you were doing, even if it was a happy moment is being able to have, you know, being able to understand their feelings and being empathetic to people, I think was one of the most important lessons that I learned as a police officer. What about as an entrepreneur, what's been the best or best lesson that you've learned? 
uh, persistence, you know, just, just keep being persistent. Just get up and do it. I think is the best lesson. Is there a massive problem that exists in the world? You know, does, I mean, massive is relative, right? You could choose right. outside of, outside of police and diamonds that okay. you would love to help solve at some point in your life. Uh, childhood homelessness. Nice. Does that, does it, is there something that connects to you about it or is it just a, uh, yeah, I, 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 um, I went on a, a trip to Brazil, um, where they used to basically, I, you know, I don't want to get too much, uh, in the negative, but they used to basically, they had a, they had a rampant problem with, with, um, homeless children and they didn't know what to do with them. And they were creating tremendous strain on the resources. So they were actually killing children in Brazil, uh, in order to, you know, to, to stop the, the, the drain on the resources. And uh, somebody that, that I met, um, you know, created a place where they took in, you know, this home, these homeless youth and they, they, they got them educated. And, and in order to leave, you know, when they left, they left with the job. And, and I went down there for 10 days and, uh, you know, and worked with the kids. And, you know, to me, uh, that was the most satisfying thing I've done in my life, to be honest with you. Um, and, 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 watching children that have been abandoned by their families, the only people they've ever known their whole lives and, and have loved being able to love again and being able to, to really come out of their shell and, 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 and form a bond with you uh, is so inspiring to me as a human being. And as a, as, even as a business person, as everything, it's so inspiring to me to watch these kids to be able to come out of their shell again and, and love again after being abandoned to me was uh, super, super unbelievable. And, I would love to be able to be part of, you know, a larger mission to solve that problem in, you know, other regions around the world. I did not know that. I've never, I've never heard that before. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was like 20 years ago that that was happening. It's not like a recent thing, um, but it was, a, it was, you know, it was a long time ago that that was happening, but, but um, it was happening. And, you know, these people went down there and, and created, you know, they solved the problem. I, I mean, at least there, I mean, it's happening in other places, but I would love to be part of that. No, no trials have to be homeless. At the end of your days, when you're, you know, many, 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 many years from now, um, what would you say will have made you a success? I think being able to, being able to say that, you know, I, I accomplished the things I want to accomplish in terms of, you know, making a, a small amount of change and, and having at least um, created a lasting impact on even if it's of the smallest, smallest type, um, you know, on the world and on the industry and on my family and leaving something behind that was more than money, but some type of, some type of uh, legacy that, that my family will be able to carry on, whether that be, you know, um, you know, service work or, or the business or, um, you know, something that they could be proud of, I think for me. Awesome. Justin, thanks for, I want to, I want to really want to acknowledge you. Um, I want to thank you first of all, for reaching out to me. You know, I kind of mentioned it at the beginning of this podcast, but you actually, you know, I don't know how you found me, but you like sought me out. You, you connected with me. You were pretty relentless. Like you wanted to be on the podcast. <laughs> I did, um, yeah. and, uh, and, and we had some hiccups and like scheduling, but again, you stayed on it. And uh, so I want to acknowledge you for your persistence here. Because I know for me personally, I got a ton of value just just having this conversation with you. Oh, thank um, you. I appreciate it. 
so I, I appreciate it. And I always think like, if I got something, because I already knew a lot of what was coming, right. um, the listeners are going to get something too. So I want to acknowledge you for the persistence that actually got you here. And it actually speaks to probably how you've done all your businesses, but I want to acknowledge you really for the, for your heart, the care in which you bring the vision that you have, um, your authenticity and the strength that kind of supports it all. Um, I'm just really present to those things about you and, uh, I'm really kind of the heart you, you got, you clearly have a huge heart and you care a lot. Thanks for bringing all that to the podcast today. Of course. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks again for being, Oh, let me, uh, we, I want to find out how people can reach out to you. I almost forgot. I was like, so, <laughs> so into who you were being with these rapid fires. How if people want to find out about, you know, any of your businesses or, uh, you know, your nonprofit or just want to connect with you. What are the best ways for them to do that? So, um, you could, you could reach, uh, our umbrella company is called three B dreams. Um, and the website is www. The number three, the letter B and then dreams.com. Uh, or they can get me on Instagram at the connector, uh, underscore. So it's the connector and then an underscore uh, on Instagram. Cool. All right. Thanks again, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Alex. I had a great time. Thank you very much. Thanks. Me too. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Dream Mason Podcast. Please subscribe to the Dream Mason Podcast so you don't miss an episode. Share it with a friend and give us a review on iTunes. I am grateful to have had you here. If you want more, you can follow or reach out to me, Alex Terranova, on Instagram at inspirationalalex or at thedreammason.com or email me at alex at thedreammason.com. And remember, you are a dream mason because your dreams don't build themselves.